what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to we're going to have to do a whirlwind uh, experience going through this uh, course that we have condensed into a. This is I mean we're going to blitz the subject of how do you make Jesus your teacher? How do you make Jesus your teacher? So many of us have settled for a human being as our teacher when Christ ought to be our teacher. So we call this presentation Ring Around the Rabbi, Christ's Personal Plan for Evangelizing and Discipling the World. What do you think of when you hear the word chef? Someone who makes food taste good, a person who prepares a variety of dishes, a professional cook like Rachel Ray or Emeril Lagasse? Well, make room galloping gourmet for the super skewer. Germany now trains chefs who make only one dish, the donor kebab, at the Hamburg Vocational School of Gastronomy and Nutrition. Yep. Clad in white overcoats, plastic gloves and caps, super skewers attend class twice a week to learn how to cut meat properly, calculate how much of it to put on a skewer, and how to avoid the spread of germs. Mm -hmm. Students will eventually earn a certificate in, get this title, Meat Processing with Donor Kebab Production Specialization. And, and they'll know how to do one thing, how to stuff kebab meat into a piece of pita bread with a handful of salad. Yep, we have definitely arrived. We live in an age of specialization. The sheer volume of what the human race has learned makes it necessary to concentrate on and become expert in a particular subject or certain skill. The limitations of the human mind plus the time it takes to master the facts and information of any branch of modern knowledge forces us to confine ourselves to a single area of interest or a specific activity. Specialization divides us into two classes, experts and amateurs. No matter how much you know about a subject, the world won't let you practice it unless you are a trained professional, an expert at it. The need for professional training does protect us from quacks and con artists, but we go too far when we use specialization to separate Bible students into experts and amateurs. In Israel, for example, the priests started out as general practitioners, as both scholars and guardians of the law. But over time, this changed. The more highly esteemed the law became in the eyes of the people, the more its study and interpretation became a life work by itself. And so a class of scholars emerged in Israel devoted completely to the law. These men became known as the scribes, professional scholars or experts of the law. The Pharisees emerged from Israel's deep desire to preserve its way of life, originally called Hasidians or faithful ones who fought secular Greek influence, they separated into two groups, the Essenes who went to live in the desert and the Parushim or separatists who stayed behind to personally influence their fellow Jews. It's not a big trip to go from Parushim to Pharisee. 
That's where the word came from. While Israel considered scribes experts of the study and official interpretation of the law, it also recognized the Pharisees as expert practitioners of it. Time and again, the scribes and Pharisees tried to stop Jesus from publicly teaching religious subjects on the grounds he had not graduated from one of their official rabbinic schools. From that time, the the 12-year-old wonder wowed them at the temple to the day they crucified him. Jewish authorities repeatedly questioned our Lord's academic pedigree and qualifications. They finally demanded, tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is the one who gave you this authority? Luke 20, verse 2. Even the people saw the difference when Jesus taught them. For instance, when he finished his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew reports, quote, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one with authority unlike the scribes. You see, Jesus instructed them straight from the word without quoting any of Israel's scholars. Not only was Jesus qualified to teach, but you and I are also qualified to learn for ourselves. In his first letter, the Apostle John said, quote, You have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. The anointing you received from him remains in you, so you do not need anyone to teach you. What is this anointing that John says eliminates the need for anyone to teach God's true people? Well, in the Old Testament, anointing refers to pouring oil on people, usually kings or priests, to represent equipping them for their office with the Holy Spirit. Since John also says that Jesus Christ has made us, you and me, kings and priests to God his Father in Revelation 1, 5, and 6, then all true believers have been anointed with the Holy Spirit to equip them for a royal priesthood to God the Father with the same Spirit John calls the Spirit of truth who will guide you into all truth in his gospel. John 16, verse 13. So the Spirit who anoints every true believer for a royal priesthood is also a divine teacher who leads pupils to pure truth throughout their lifetime because God seals every true believer with the Spirit until Redemption Day. No wonder, John says, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, so you never need anyone to teach you. Something amazing happens when the Spirit guides us through the Bible. Jesus said, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into full truth. He won't speak on his own. He will say what he hears. And will give me glory because he will tell you what I say. The Spirit does not speak for himself. He only repeats what Jesus tells him. So the Spirit does more than just make sure you end up with truth. God wants you to be more than just right 
God wants you to end up with the truth, his son, so you won't, I mean, sorry, so you can be right with him too. You get the picture? We don't want to just be right. We want to be right with God. So God gave us the Holy Spirit as our teacher. In addition to leading us to pure truth, he also convicts the world of sin, of God's righteousness, and of the coming judgment to do something about our lack of faith in Christ and make us right with God. So instead of learning about Christ, Bible study is actually learning from Christ through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus told his disciples to take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Did you notice that? Learn from me. And Paul urged the Ephesians to stop living like they used to because this is not the way, he said, you have learned Christ. If, in fact, you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, Ephesians 4, 20 and 21. Even when someone shares a brilliant insight with us from the written word, we should explore it for ourselves with the living word through the ministry of the Holy Spirit to make sure we have been led into full truth, just like the legendary Bereans of Acts 17, 11, who checked what Paul told them against the scriptures for themselves. But as you study for yourself, try to avoid an Elijah complex. Remember, quote, a nation will fall when there is no direction. But with many advisors, there is safety. Proverbs eleven fourteen. So the safest way to study the Bible is to check your discoveries with many others. We all need confirmation from other students of God's word that we have heard his voice and understand a text as he intended. Now, many Jews suffered spiritually from dividing themselves into experts and amateurs. Leaving Bible study in the hands of a few experts robbed most of them of the ability to grasp God's word for themselves. Because studying what others have found in the Bible, instead of discovering truth for ourselves, damages our personal thinking skills and destroys our ability to grasp the deep meaning of Scripture. As Maria Cleves Diamond wrote in the first issue of the popular mental health magazine, Mind Shift Connection, She said that the receptive branches of the nerve cells, called dendrites, form a neural network that becomes the hardware of intelligence. As we think, dendrites receive input from other nerve cells and actually multiply. But they drop in number when we don't use them. The phrase, use it or lose it, definitely applies to the thinking process. See, gray matter shrinks when we don't have to think very much, when we casually watch or listen to others or routinely go about our daily business at home or at work. But it grows when we think critically, 
when we carefully analyze and evaluate what we see or hear in its context, cautiously interpreting input to reach sound conclusions for ourselves, decreasing the risk of adopting, acting on, or thinking with false belief. Sacred history clearly shows that God wants us to get truth straight from him instead of through others, even if the truths they bring to us are 100% pure. Now, that may be a surprise to you. You may be saying to yourself, what difference does it make if I find it or someone else does just as long as I end up with pure truth? Well, try this on for size. A whole generation of Israelites relied on an inspired leader, Moses, for truth. And he delivered it word for word to them from God. How many people in Israel made it into the promised land by letting Moses do all the communication with God? Open book test. I never ask a question unless the answer is on the screen. How many people... The answer, you're right, the answer is just two people. Not very good odds. What's more, whoever holds the jug from which secondhand knowledge pours limits students to what he or she knows. But there aren't any limits with Christ in charge. So to understand the Bible for ourselves, let's review quickly. There are three things we need to do. First, we have to revive skills we've lost from lack of use. Number two, we need to resume development of our mind's ability to think, underdeveloped from lack of mental exercise. And we need to retrofit Christ as our teacher. Now, you probably noticed they all started with R's, right? Revive, resume, retrofit. I am a preacher, and I do suffer from alliteration disease. You know, they all have to line up with the same. But retrofit was the perfect word, because the idea is now that you are becoming aware that Christ should be your teacher, you don't just say, well, from now on, Jesus is my teacher. You really need to go back and study everything all over again with him. Boy, are you going to be surprised on how much you missed you will be surprised. Now, any one of us can revitalize lost or rusty skills by using them to study God's Word. They, you know, it's like riding a bicycle. They just kind of come back to you. And many of us can resume development of the stunted powers of our minds by comparing Scripture with Scripture and spiritual things with spiritual because the supernatural thoughts of the Bible will stretch our minds back into shape. It's like reading any book written by someone smarter than you are. As you read it, your mind has to stretch to keep up with the thoughts in it. Well, these are supernatural thoughts. These are divine thoughts. As you study the book as it was meant to be studied, your mind will stretch back into full shape. What's more, we can retrofit Christ as our teacher as long as we remember that nothing, not even Christian literature that quotes the Bible, can stand in for God's written word. And no one, not even a gifted Christian leader, scholar, educator, or speaker, can stand in for God's living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? 
Now, when Christ and the Bible regain their rightful place among us, we will stop relying on church membership, theology, and lifestyles and return to the basic Christian life skills of daily Bible study and nonstop prayer to live the genuine Christian life. We will want the same personal relationship with Christ he wants with us. Enough to get the skills, trained to use them, and start living the abundant life he talks about in the Bible. But you're probably wondering, how can Christ, who sits on a throne beside his Father in heaven and is no longer physically with us in this world, still be our teacher? Well, let me explain. In Jesus' day, teachers called rabbis conducted classes in the tradition of the schools of the prophets at the center of study groups, surrounded by circles of students. Can you just picture them? Long flowing robes, long beards, long hair, sitting under a tree, and all these students gathered around, everyone trying to soak up everything they could from the sage. Everyone adopted that rabbi-disciple model at the time, even Jesus, a longtime opponent of the rabbis. The school of Christ turns out to be a rabbinic discipleship class. In fact, to guarantee justice in the delicate matter of church discipline, Jesus actually said, when two or three gather in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Now, when people read that, they have all these bizarre interpretations of what that means. But actually, rather than saying something mysterious about himself, Jesus painted a picture of himself as the rabbi, always at the center of his true followers, instructing, guiding, and directing them. See, many people think church discipline puts them at the mercy of fellow church members. They picture church discipline as a courtroom scene with brothers and sisters as judges. Anyone here really enjoy getting disciplined by an older brother or sister? Younger brother and sister. Nobody enjoys that, so Jesus knew that. So after he goes through the whole process of church discipline, in verse 20, he tacks on that thought. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Why? See, Jesus used the rabbi-disciple model to set the record straight. The rabbi is always in charge, not his disciples. Instead of challenging or questioning their rabbis, disciples only repeat word for word what their rabbis tell them. Like disciples around their rabbi, when two or three of Christ's followers gather in his name, he is at the center, in their midst, instructing them. And they, like good disciples, repeat his will word for word. It may look as though his followers act as judges during church discipline, but Jesus never lets go of his role as the leader. He is always in charge, and he is the only one who ever judges his people. 
But please don't get the wrong idea. Jesus adopted only the rabbinic format, not the rabbinic system. He broke with rabbinic tradition when he told his disciples in Matthew 23, 8, quote, Don't let anyone call you rabbi, for you have only one master, Christ, and all of you are family. And then went on to say in verse 10, Neither let them call you teachers, for you have only one teacher, Christ. Now, how many rabbis, masters, and teachers are there in the school of Christ? It's only one. Jesus said it himself. And forbid anyone else to even try to take the same titles that belong only to him. Every Jewish disciple dreamed of becoming a rabbi. The whole purpose of studying as a disciple was to end up a master teacher. Disciples couldn't wait to graduate from school and start schools of their own. Why did Jesus deny his disciples every Jewish boy's dream and reserve the titles rabbi, master, and teacher for himself? Because... He didn't want anyone to get the wrong idea about him or his disciples. You see, Israelites put rabbis on a pedestal. They looked up to them as heroes who had their spiritual act together, perfect specimens of what God wanted them to be. In their eyes, rabbis thought, spoke, and did everything right. So... Jewish disciples idolized their rabbis and studied them rather than God, hoping to become duplicates of them. Imagine that. The rabbinic discipleship system left God out of the equation. It was idolize your rabbi, make him the obsession of your life, and try to become just like God. They called their teachers master and soaked up all they could from them. And when they completely mastered their masters, they graduated and became rabbis themselves. See, the word disciple means duplicate. A disciple is someone who wants to become a duplicate of his master or teacher. And so when the time came that they could graduate, they became rabbis. But unlike Jewish disciples, Christians never master Rabbi Jesus to graduate from the school of Christ in this lifetime. Jesus will always be the only rabbi of his class. Now, the Jews believed that studying someone who mastered his master was as good as studying with his master, but Christ rejected the idea. No one, not even a gifted Christian leader, scholar, educator, or speaker will ever get to the place in the Christian life that they can say, you know, you don't need to study my master Jesus to become like him. No, sir, studying me or with me is just as good as studying him or with him. Now, despite these clear instructions directly from Jesus, many of today's Christians have done this very 
thing. Relying so much on church membership, theology, and lifestyle because of hectic end-time schedules that few spend time communicating directly with Christ except when absolutely necessary, during worship services and and times of crisis. So we substitute reading books about the Bible for getting together with Christ to study the Bible. We watch videos. We watch television. We listen to radio. We pop in CDs or DVDs at home, and we substitute those experiences for time we could have spent directly in contact with Christ. Something Jesus absolutely forbade. Jewish rabbis even taught that parents bring children into this world, but since they, the rabbis, brought their disciples, their children, into the world to come, they deserve the title father even more than parents did. Naturally, Jesus disagreed with them. He warned his disciples, call no man on earth father, for one is your father, the one who is in heaven. Matthew 23, 9. No one else can take credit for bringing another person into the kingdom. And Jesus used the yoke, the most popular symbol of the rabbi-disciple connection in his day, to prove his point. The yoke represents a relationship between how many parties? Two. Yes, very good. It's on the screen. Farmers use the yoke to pair up an obedient ox with an inexperienced or defiant one so the oxen could walk together, allowing the obedient one to train the inexperienced or defiant one to become just like it. So when Jesus invites us to take my yoke upon you and learn from me, he offers us a personal relationship with him as rabbi teacher and us as his disciples so we can walk together with him and he can make us just like himself. As his disciples, then we must step into the yoke with him and him alone. We're his disciples. Now I have to ask you two questions. Number one, is there anyone else besides Jesus qualified to make us just like Jesus? Of course not. And when Jesus makes us just like him, then what happens? We become restored in the image of God that Jesus shares with the rest of the Trinity. Is there anyone other than a member of the Trinity who can accomplish that in your life? Answer, no. Jesus is the only one who can mold and shape his disciples into duplicates of himself and so restore in us the image only he shares with the Trinity, the image of God. Jesus told his disciples not to let anyone call them rabbi because discipleship is the process by which he exclusively, only Jesus can do this, make disciples just like himself. Mentoring is the process by which disciples equip, train, and coach other disciples, enabling them to be better students of Christ in the school of Christ. 
That's why we're not supposed to call anybody else teacher other than Jesus. Human teachers are equippers. Their job is to equip us to be better students of Jesus in the school of Christ. Because as we said earlier, how many members are there in the faculty of the school of Christ? Just one. Just Jesus. Discipling and mentoring are not the same. The first is a work of God, by God. And the second is a work for God. And both are a work of the Holy Spirit. Now, while you and I can make disciples by enrolling others in the school of Christ to be his students, Jesus is the only one who can transform disciples into replicas of himself. Our job is to connect them with Christ by faith so he can transform them. It's the whole purpose of the church. Our purpose is to witness to Christ. So people will want a relationship with him. We bring them to Christ so they'll connect with Christ. And then through that connection, Jesus is able to make them just like himself. As Paul told the Ephesians, they could live changed lives, assuming you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Or as Jesus put it, take my yoke, a relationship with me that makes people like me on you and learn from me. So how do we connect people with Christ by faith so he can transform them? Well, the first thing we have to do is preach the gospel to motivate people to connect, reconnect, or improve their faith connection with Christ. Number two, we should equip people, the ones who respond by faith to the call of the gospel, to exercise their skills and connect with God for themselves through his word every time they open the Bible. Connect with him. You get the picture? And number three, we show them how to organize, launch, and lead home Bible fellowships where they can equip others to connect with God and grow Christ-like together. It's a very simple plan. Step number one is revival. Step number two is equipping. Step number three is organizing them into home Bible fellowships. They can support one another and grow. And then the groups multiply and divide. And as they grow, the church grows. Can I ask a question? Sure. What, what uh, translation of the Bible do you recommend for this process? <laughs> are you going to get uh, Let me get to that uh, and remind me about it because there are different versions that lend themselves to different levels of study. So we, we teach, we have a school, we're a fully accredited extension of Griggs University. You know, Griggs University, Home Study International University. Um, and, and so we teach actually six levels of Bible study. And, and they require different translations to, you know, enable the people that are studying to, to have a translation that works well for them at their level. So we, we will talk about that. Now, let's say that we have already piqued people's interest in Christ enough to establish, revive, or improve a connection with him. That's when we introduce people to quicker study. Yep. 
Real Bible study for unchurched and churched people with little or no Bible study experience. One of the biggest problems you have when you study with people that are either unchurched or they're churched but they've never really studied the Bible is that when they start trying to study, they get very frustrated. Especially if you're good at it and they're not. And what happens is they begin to just, their frustration overpowers them and and they, they want to give up. And sometimes they're kind, and they just sit there and yes you to death, but then the next time you go to get back together with them, they don't want to get back together with you. So quicker study was our way of getting everybody into the act. Unchurched and church people, whether they have a lot of study experience or little or no study experience. Number two, quicker study uses reading and comprehension skills the everyday kind that everybody knows. We were all taught these basic reading and comprehension skills in grades 3, 4, 5, and 6 of our elementary education. And we use those very skills so that everyone gets involved and plays a part in what's going on. Using these skills, people that don't know Christ can see things and start making contributions to the, to the lesson so they actually feel like they're a part. One thing people don't like being is lectured. And I'm afraid a lot of our studies are lectures because we know and they don't and we try to transfer or transplant what we know into them. <clears throat> doesn't work that way. The best thing to do is to equip people to find things, to see them for themselves. Then when they get them, it belongs to them. And there's a a connection. Well, it's like a breathe-free plan to stop smoking. Which one does a person get more involved in? The, The one that's provided for free or the one he paid something for? The one he paid something for, exactly. We've learned that over the years. If you charge something for all of these breathe-free plans or cooking schools or anything, if if you charge them something, they're more involved. They they have a sense of ownership. And, And that's what you want. You want to come up with, and we did this on purpose with Quicker Study. We found a way so that people get really involved. They really get involved. Number three, quicker study is based on three simple laws of interpretation and one main skill so easy even children can do it. Now, let's go back to the beginning. (laughs) What is Bible study? Tony, you may want to start handing out the worksheets so people will have them in a few minutes when we need them. Okay, and I'm going to take a quick pause here. Okay. I wish we had time so I could ask you to define Bible study for us. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to do it for us because of the time constraints. Bible study is learning the truth about God and man from the Bible. Some people think Bible study is using the Bible to study a lesson prepared from the Bible. It isn't. Bible study is actually the act of digging into the Bible itself under the Holy Spirit's guidance to find and learn something new from Christ, our teacher. You understand what I'm saying? 
Bible study is not using the Bible to study a lesson prepared from the Bible. That is not Bible study. Bible study is the act of digging into the Bible itself under the Holy Spirit's guidance to find and learn something new from Christ, our teacher. One of our pioneers warned, quote, We must not take the testimony of any man as to what the scriptures teach, but should study the words of God for ourselves. Sad to say, churches rarely train lay people to study the Bible with Christ in depth for themselves because a majority of lay people believe they should leave deep study to the pros and see nothing wrong in getting truth second hand. In fact, during the early 80s, the church tried to upgrade study but had to return to the made-for-lay-people format because they protested the changes. You may remember that. Leo R. Vandolson retired, made a deal with the GC as the retiring Sabbath school superintendent that we would shift away from studying themes and start studying the Bible book by book, verse by verse, the way it was meant to be studied. That lasted about, what, six quarters. You, you, I, we're not even going to talk about how they protested, but it was so fierce that the General Conference voted to go back to the thematic studies, and we've been back to them ever since. So attempts to upgrade the study by lay people have failed miserably. See, instead of simplifying real skills to pass them on to lay people, churches are forced... Remember, I, we talked about how this worked in Israel and how it deprived the people of first-hand knowledge of God for themselves? Well, churches today are forced to substitute simplistic programs and shallow methods for the real thing, like spoon-feeding, so lay people can memorize the answers without thinking for themselves. Or how about oversimplified breakdowns of Bible books, chapters, and verses that barely skim the surface of the text? Or, or how about amateurish topic or character studies that skip over context and overlook the inspired strength of the text? This is what lay people do. And it's a, it's, it's a tragedy. Because... All you need to know is how to read and comprehend what you read and surrender to the Holy Spirit. Learn a few simple skills, and the Bible will open up its treasure trove to you. I mean, there there won't be a secret withheld from you if you're willing to discipline yourself and get into the Word of God. Instead of training them to learn directly from Christ, lay people become codependent on humanly teachers and limit themselves to what their teachers know. Quicker study changes all that. It equips people to understand the Bible for themselves while depending on Jesus through the Holy Spirit to explain the meaning of any text. Every morning we have a, an online devotional. Uh, it's live, real time. People get on you know, by computer or by telephone. And I do a a short devotional, and then we throw it open for discussion. We have a great time. And what, what I tell them when we're done is I'm saying, listen, we've had a great time. 
I've shared with you some of the things the still small voice of God told me, and I shared that with you. Then we we threw it open for discussion, and you could hear the, the reflection on what God has said and so on, but now is the best part. Now, take what we've done and just read this passage over again for yourself. Take your time. Don't rush it. As you study it again for yourself, leaning entirely on God through prayer, you know what happens? God will customize the lessons of the text to you. You'll be reading it, and God will drive home through the Holy Spirit the meaning of the text. It'll sound so practical. By the time you're through, you say, wow, that was written thousands of years ago just for me. If you'll give God the time and, and, and come to God by faith, believing he wants you to understand the passage. And you will. And you will understand it. We tell him that every morning. And, and just yesterday, I managed to get on again with our group. This morning, I wasn't feeling well, so I didn't get back on with them. But yesterday, I got on, and, and one of the ladies said, um, she said, you know what? I've been doing what you say. She said, it has just tripled, quadrupled the joy of the morning when I'm reading it for myself and God speaks to me. And it, and it all comes to me. It's like, it's like he really wrote it and meant it just for me. So that's what we want you to experience, that, that connection with God that is it's alive. Either you believe the Holy Spirit is for real or you don't. But he is real. And God will speak to you through the Bible. Now, though there are many methods of Bible study, they all boil down to two ways of learning. Inductively, learning directly from the Bible, or um, without anything to prove, using a series of simple searching questions to discover truth for yourself. The famous five W's and an H. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. Or inductively, I'm sorry, deductively, with something to prove working toward conclusions that support it. The inductive approach lets the Bible explain itself. It works best for exploring the Bible and equipping others to join you. The deductive approach pre-shapes your view of the text. You're looking for something that matches up with what you already think or know. And it works best for reviewing doctrine or sharing what you know with others. Now, quick study gets its name from the speed with which it allows you to inductively study any passage in depth. Instead of studying a whole book at a time to make sure you stay in context, through a simple process called targeting, you can quickly zero in any passage for closer study without losing its context. Now, I mean, for years, inductive Bible teachers have said, you've got to study a whole book at a time to make sure you don't lose the context, the world the writer created for, for, the, for the book. Because if you study it out of context, you can make the thing say whatever you want. But we've come up with a thing called targeting that will help you to get the context. And you don't have to study the whole book all at one time. You can focus almost immediately on a single passage. Quicker study is a streamlined version of quick study. Designed to get you inductively digging into God's word for yourself as soon as possible. Intended to lay a foundation for quick study. 
Once you get used to quicker studies, ground floor skills, you can upgrade yourself in as few as 30 days to quick studies, more effective but very user-friendly techniques and procedures with all the bells and whistles. You can also start interested people, new members, or visitors on quicker study and gradually work them up to quick study as they are able to handle it. So it makes the study experience in a group not just a matter of getting more out of the text, but acquiring more and more skill, more tools to dig with when when a person gets into the Bible for themselves. Now, what's the difference between quick study and quicker study? Well, quick study uses six worksheets plus a text sheet to methodically analyze and understand a passage, although it's very simple. To speed up things, quicker study uses only one full worksheet and part of another. A text sheet, and that's about it, along with some of the most basic skills. And that's what you use in quicker study. One worksheet, one text sheet, and just a little part. Actually, I I didn't give you a copy of the other uh, worksheet because it's just, it's just the, the heading at the very top of that worksheet that's all you work with. To inter- the uh, uh, quicker study skills help you to interact with the Bible writer and understand what he means quickly and easily. Now, how can we learn from Christ? Well, Christ can teach us when we prayerfully practice techniques and procedures that allow the Bible to explain itself. The Bible writers followed three simple rules when they wrote their books. Very simple stuff. The law of summary, the law of context, and the law of repetition. Learn to recognize when the writers use these rules, and the Bible will explain itself to you. Really, it's that easy. The law of summary. What's the law of summary? Well, Bible writers tend to summarize what they are about to say before they go into detail. Think of the book of Genesis, opening line. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know what that is? It's a summary of the entire creation story. Because in verse 2, he goes back to square one and says, Now the earth was without form and void. So if you recognize that a writer starts with a summary statement then everything else becomes much clearer. Psalm 23. What's the opening line in Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's a summary statement of what the whole psalm is about. And then he goes into verse 2. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name. Everything else is all the details. Opening line is a summary of everything David wants to say. You're going to find that all through the New Testament as well. It's not just an Old Testament thing. The Holy Spirit, last time I checked, inspired the whole Bible, not just the Old Testament. Yeah, imagine that. Now, in addition to summarizing things before they go into detail, Bible writers also tend to sum up what they have just said before they move on to the next point. They want to make sure you got what they were trying to say before they introduce you to the next idea. So, for example, Paul condenses his thoughts into a single word, justification, at the end of chapter 4, so he can smoothly transition to Romans 5 that talks about justification. In fact, 
I don't know how many of you have seen, have you seen us on 3ABN, our program on Romans? We kept saying it all through the program, and it's true. Every single passage, Paul sums up his ideas before he transitions into the very opening line of the next passage. He does it every single time. So if you want to know what a passage is going to be about, take a look at the last line of the previous one, and that's the introduction to the next one. It's, it's remarkable how, how he does, he's consistent. He's remarkably consistent and does that all the time. Second law, the law of context. Everything in the Bible leads up to and prepares us for what comes after it. If you're studying something in the Bible and you're a little stymied, just read what came before it. And it'll lead you right into it, prepare you for it, gets you ready to understand it, and off you go. See, writers created a world for words, people, places, and things in the text called the context, out of the audience's circumstances plus their own purposes. They married those two things and came up with this world for each Bible book. The basic unit for study is called a passage, a series of back-to-back verses that talk about the same thing. Since a writer used all the verses in a passage to make his point, we must consider all the verses in a passage to understand it. Does that make sense? Sure. And so, when you're, if you're looking at a verse in the middle, you want to know about all the verses that came before that lead up to that verse you want to study, and then together with your verse, see how they lead you into and prepare you for the rest of the passage, whatever's left. And you can follow a writer's thoughts. Third law. I mean, this is simple stuff. This is not hard. This is not rocket science. It's just a matter of discipline and a desire to study. What do you think is the most motivating factor for people to really study their Bibles? What do you think? A love for God. If you're in love with Christ... There's no holding you back. There's no holding you back. That you'll get into the Bible and you can spend hours and hours in there getting to know him. Now, the law of repetition, third law. Writers repeat what's important to them. And the more they repeat it, the more important it is. Writers repeat themselves three ways. With words that refer to the same identical item. For example... Pronouns In Psalm 23, after it announces a psalm of David, then David says, the Lord is my shepherd. Who is my? It's David. So the word my is referring to David. He just repeated himself for us. So just you go through and you mark everything that repeats David. And you'll, and you'll discover where he's talking about himself, where he's talking about someone else. And so it's very simple. Um, substitutes. He restores my soul. My is obviously David, but whose soul is it? It's David. Guess what? The word soul, just like the word my, is referring back to David. It's a substitute for David. Just like he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Get that? His name's sake. Who is his? The Lord. And whose name is that? The Lord's again. So his name, that all refers back to him. So you just mark it the same way. And sometimes plurals. 
um, that not always, but sometimes plurals still refer to the same entity. Okay? So writers also repeat themselves with similar words that are naturally alike. So, for example, the rod and staff in Psalm 23, verse 4, they're similar. Though they do different things, they are both sticks made from wood. And so the rod and the staff are similar to each other. The third way that writers repeat themselves is with related words that are logically alike. By um, comparing things, in other words, these are not things that everybody would consider alike, related to each other, but the writer did when he wrote it. So, for example, writers compare things they think share something. So to David, the time periods, all the days of my life, that's the rest of his life on earth, and forever, eternity, the hereafter, in Psalm 23, 6, have something in common. And the answer is simple. He's confident that the Lord will look after him in both of those time periods, just as he has in the past of his life. So you you can see that the two time periods, he's putting them together because he's saying, the Lord's look after me this far, he'll look after me the rest of my life, and then even after death, he'll be looking after me even then. So they're related to each other. Um, Sometimes, uh, like, again, we're going to use David as another example. Writers group things together that they think share some, uh, some kind of connection. To David, since the Lord... Um, makes to lay down, leads, restores, and guides just like shepherds do, then you know what? David grouped those things together, one right after the other, because by showing that the Lord does the same thing as shepherds, that proves to us the Lord is a shepherd too. So he, he puts the, they're all put together there because that's, that's the reason why. And sometimes writers contrast things they consider opposites. So, for example, to David, walk and dwell cover the two main phases of the Christian life. The word walk describes the, um, the believer's uh, journey through this world. And the word dwell tells us what will happen when God's flock reaches its final destination in the house of the Lord. So we walk through this world, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord when the flock hits the final destination, and we're not going to wander anymore. So, so he, he puts walk and dwell together. Normally, you'd say, walk and dwell. What, what have they got in common? In David's mind, because he's using them to describe the whole Christian life, they work and fit together. Now, the three laws will help you to bring out the meaning of the text if you know how to use a study Bible and notice patterns in the text when things are repeated and all that sort of thing like we've just talked about. It will boost the power of your study if you also know how to use Strong's Concordance, use other helpful study tools, and ask the right questions and find answers to them. The last thing you want to learn, and it's very important, is how to find timeless truths in the text and then apply them to life today. Now, here's the plan. Quicker study. Snap a big picture of the book to get the main context. Target the passage for closer study. Now, how do you snap a picture of the book to get the main context? If you look in a study Bible or a Bible dictionary, on the, you know, the name of the book you want to study. 
It'll tell you who wrote it, when he wrote it, why he wrote it, where it takes place, when it happens, when was it written, why the author, all those things are there. If you look on your worksheets, you'll see on the worksheets, the one marked worksheet one, with the picture at the top. Okay, if you look at that one, you'll see all the questions are there. That's a typical worksheet one from our uh, from all of the worksheets we've developed. Uh, by the way, for quick study, uh, we have a manual like this, which you can order from us. Okay, so we have the quick study manual. Um, it has everything in there for quicker study as well as quick study. Step-by-step instructions and a whole lot of other things. Strong's concordance is probably the best of the concordances. The reason Strong's is the best is he didn't realize it, but he assigned a number to every word in the original language. And today, to make these tools available for lay people, uh, scholars have taken very scholarly books and things and keyed them to those Strong's numbers. So you don't need to know Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek to use these sophisticated tools anymore. All you need is a Strong's number. So Strong's is great. Um, So anyway, that's quick study. I should bring this out too. Ring Around the Rabbi. It's the title of a book. This is what what this is all about. The idea of having Jesus for a teacher and the implications to you, not only your study life, but your whole Christian walk of of being a disciple of Christ. Not another human being, but of Christ. So we have this. For small groups, we have How to Lead a Home Bible Fellowship with Christ in Charge. This, this helps you to understand the dynamics of small groups, especially those that want to put Jesus at the center and study with him and then live their lives for him. So that's what this is for. And the handbook, which we talked about earlier, this is the one, the course, that won the gold medallion, and this is available too. We, we have well over 20... Bible study aids for small groups, discipleship, and so on. You know, before you leave, we'll make sure you get a, an invoice. So if you want to order, you can order by phone, you can order over the Internet, you can order there by mail, whatever you want to do. Uh, we have a catalog for you and some other things as well. But this is Worksheet 1. And again, if you fill in the answers to these questions, you'll get the big picture of the book, the main context of the book. Okay. Now, once you've got the main context of the book, now you want to start zeroing in on your passage. You've chosen a passage you want to study. If you've got Bibles with you, if you open them up, you'll probably notice that almost every Bible has subheadings. You know what those subheadings do? Divide the book into passages. The subheadings tell us that all the verses under the subheading talk about the same thing, the thing mentioned in the subheading. So that it groups, it tells us how the, the writer grouped the verses together that talk about the same thing. And you want, remember we told you the basic unit for study is a passage. Don't try to tackle a verse by itself. If you want to understand a verse, Use all the verses before it and after it that are part of the passage. Study it as a passage, and you'll be more certain to come out with the the proper understanding of what the writer meant. So, after you snap that big picture, now you want to target the passage. The first thing you want to do is, the last question in the big picture is, get the main headings of the outline of the book. 
Now, for example, we've given you a worksheet, and you can practice this for yourselves later. We, we got off to a late start, so we're not going to have all the time. I, I had this pretty well timed out. But um, we're, we want to look at Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Now, there, most study Bibles will divide the book of Matthew into three parts. The birth and preparation of Jesus, chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 4, verse 11. The message and ministry of Jesus the King, chapter 4, verse 12 through, through chapter 25, verse 46. And then finally, the death and, and resurrection of Jesus the King, chapters 26 through 28. Okay? Which of these three sections contains Matthew 4, 1 through 11? The first one. Exactly. In fact, it's the very last part, 4, 1 through 11, is the very last part of the first section. Now, what do you learn from that? Just quickly. That section is labeled the birth and preparation of Jesus the King. If Chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, is the very last part of the section, birth and preparation of the king. What does that tell you about what happens in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11? What? It's part of his preparation. It's the final step in his preparation. The last step of Jesus being prepared for his earthly ministry occurs in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Okay? So, I mean, you could tell some things just by looking at an outline. It's very simple. You you don't have to be a scholar or a genius. Obviously, it's the last part. It's the last step. The the final preparation. And chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 is the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. So, his temptation in the wilderness was the final step in preparing Jesus for his earthly ministry. So we know where it is now. The second thing is to look at the subheadings again. If you look at the subheadings, you'll see that there's a passage just before the one you want to study and a passage just after the one you want to study. If you look on your, on your sheet, I didn't give you the entire worksheet, but if you look on your sheet, you'll, you'll notice that um, the passage before is verses 13 through 17 of chapter 3 the baptism of Jesus. Then comes chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, the temptation of Jesus. And then the next chapter is chapter 4, verses 12 through 16 is the next passage. And that's part of the the beginning of Jesus' message and ministry. So right away, what do you tell? If the baptism is part of the preparation of Jesus, getting him ready for his ministry then the baptism coming just before the temptation prepared Jesus for the temptation. Get it? In fact, what you'll discover is the baptism of Jesus was like a dress rehearsal for Jesus to go through the temptation. And, and, and you, you, you'll notice these things very simply and quickly. I want to take your question, but I, I've got like just a couple of minutes here. Go ahead. Yes. Yes. 
It's, yes, it's true. Uh, not every translation agrees. Not every group of scholars agrees. But you will find about 95% of the time, almost every study Bible agrees with where passages begin and end. It's a very simple step, and you can, it's fairly reliable. And, and even if it's a little bit off, as you're studying, you're going to find where another verse should have been included or a verse should have been left out. The passage should have been considered over sooner than, than they say. Sometimes it is good to compare translations. Now, this is where we talk for just a minute on translations. Quicker study is meant to be fast, to get people into the text without all the fanfare, the bells, the whistles. You don't want to scare new people. So the best thing to do with, a, with, with quicker study is to use a dynamic translation. A translation not, not as rigid as the, the classic translation. Classic translations would include King James, New King James, Revised Standard, New Revised Standard, the American Standard of 1901, and, and then the, the New American Standard and its update in 1995. Those are all examples of classic formal translating. Dynamic translations, instead of going word for word, form for form, go thought for thought and use as many words as they feel are necessary to bring out the meaning. So instead of a translation where you're forced to go to to Strong's and start looking up all the words, in a dynamic translation, they are attempting to bring out the meaning of the words right in the translation. So it seems easier to read, easier to understand and follow. Now, it's true, every once in a while they get off, so do the formal translations too. I mean, a translation is an interpretation. Every translation of the Bible into English is the product of interpreters. Translators are interpreters. You want the the, the original thing, you need to go to Strong's and look it up. Okay? But you want to use a dynamic translation because it's fast and easy to use. Okay? So... Very quickly, because we're, we're, we're already past our time, but still within our original time limit here. I'm trying to work with that. So you look at the subheadings in your study Bible. When you do, you'll see the passage before, the passage you want to study, and then the one that comes after it. When you prepare your own text sheets, we have CDs and things that you can, you can get. And they, they come with templates where you can automatically do this. If you look on your worksheets, the passage before, single space it, because you're not going to study it as in-depth as the one you want to study. The one you want to study comes next, and you double space that one. And then the one that comes after it, single space it too. So you should have three passages on your text sheets. Okay? And, and with those three passages, you're ready to start getting in there. Now, the next thing you do is you start comparing your passage with the ones that come before and after it. Read the passage before the one you want to study, then read the passage you want to study, and go one verse at a time, pausing to underline same, similar, and related uh, terms. Let, let me just show you quickly how that works. We're not going to have time to do very much. But I'm going to just do a quick one here. Okay. This is what I printed out on your sheet. This is um, Matthew 4. Matthew 3, then Matthew 4. 
let's go right over here. Is that big enough where you can all read it, or should I make it just a teeny bit larger? Let's, let's go to 150. There we go. Everybody can read that, right? Okay, so we've, you've read this, and then you start going into Matthew 4, 1 through 11. The first thing you read is, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. Of course, Jesus has already been mentioned. So what you, what you do is you underline Jesus and give him his own color. And go back to the other passage, and there Jesus is mentioned there. Same color, and underline. So the person sees that this is a continuation of what the writer was saying about Jesus in the previous passage. The next thing you notice, it says he was led by the Spirit. You'll notice, ooh, jumped on me there. You'll notice then in the previous passage... It talks about, as Jesus was baptized, he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. So the Spirit is mentioned here. And by the way, it identifies it as God's Spirit. So you're not uh, wondering whose Spirit or what Spirit this is. We know, now they know whose Spirit it is. Give it its own color. Underline it. Come back down here. And then here's the Spirit again. Same color and underline. Okay? Notice it says into the wilderness. That's a location. Let's give it its own color. Uh, We use orange, I guess. And if you go back into the previous passage, where was he before? He was at, at the Jordan River getting baptized. So you have a location in one, and then the location in... You know, you can show them, and people then start learning that in the Bible, things follow after one another. You don't just wonder, where did that come from? It's obvious. It's there. It's part of it. And then the next thing you notice, it says here, he was led into the wilderness to be tempted. Okay, so let's, let's mark tempted. Let's give it its own color. And in the previous passage, why was he down at the Jordan River? He was getting baptized. So as you're doing this, the group is talking. You're seeing where everything is coming from. It's very simple. And then they begin to realize he got baptized before he was tempted. And if this is his preparation, then the baptism must have prepared him for the temptation. See? So you're you're going back and forth, back and forth. When you do this, uh, people begin to follow the writer's thoughts, and the writer is more understandable. Let me just give you a couple more quick thoughts here, and we're going to call it a day. All right. Uh, So, let's see. So we started by snapping a big picture. We targeted, first we saw what section of the book it was in. Then we nailed it between its two passages. We know exactly where it is. And by doing this this back and forth thing, you will see how the writer set this passage up with the one before, and how this passage sets up the one that comes after it. Nothing scholarly, nothing fancy. But they begin to see the connection 
between words and phrases and locations and people and places and things. And it's, the Bible starts to come alive for people. Then, like I said, you compare it, we're doing this, and then we move on. Then you interpret the passage from what the, what the passage has taught you about itself and use one or more of the following icebreakers. Here are examples of how you would generate discussion and really get into it and stick to the text. You could ask a leading question from the passage before. If the passage before got every, you know, gets the reader ready for the one you want to study, if you can come up with a question from that one, it'll help you to, and lead you into the passage and get the discussion going. So, for example, you could say, is there any resemblance between the answer to John and those Jesus made to the devil? And the answer is yes. Jesus corrected John. John said, you're coming to me for baptism? I need you to baptize me. Jesus corrects him. This is what we need for all righteousness. Do it. He has to correct him. Devil, three times the devil says something, Jesus has to come back and correct him. So if you start looking at the passage as misstatements, in John's case, unintentional, in the devil's case, on purpose, Jesus comes back and always corrects. Okay? And you can see how the passage works. Another example would be if you go to the Handbook for Bible Study, my book, or the IVP Bible Background Commentary. It's a book that takes all the background about the people, places, things, geography, history, culture, you name it, and puts it all together book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So when you look at it, it tells you all the background stuff so you can understand the passage. And I I wish I could have given you an example of that, but I gave you a, a page with some stuff from my book. A question that would come up, um, the IVP Bible background commentary says, you know, Jesus fasted for 40 days and nights, so did Moses. Does that mean Jesus is going to be a new Moses? Well, as you start to study, guess what? Just two passages away, Jesus is on the top of the mount, and he's delivering the Sermon on the Mount. Guess what? He's the new Moses, delivering to God's Israel the law all over again. He is a new Moses. Um, You could look, there's the NET Bible, the NET Bible, because it was done over the internet. Scholars never met. They did it all over the internet. But NET is short for New English Translation. It has a lot of scholarly notes, but it does make some wonderful um, statements about the language in the text. And if you look in there, for example, uh, it says that when Jesus says, uh, the devil says to the Jesus, command these stones to become bread, you get the impression that he knows that Jesus is the Son of God and is giving him a chance to just prove it. You know? But actually, a literal translation would be, say to these stones, they should become bread. It's like a hint of doubt. So you wonder, and you could say to the group, is he just insulting Jesus or is he taunting him? The answer is he's tempting him, which means he wants him to fail. So he's really taunting Jesus, trying to get him to make a mistake. Another quickie. You could focus attention on key words, people, places, or things in the text. For example, the wilderness could not sustain life. 
When, when Israel was in the wilderness, if God had not given manna and quail and, and, and the rock hadn't been smitten to release water, Israel would have perished in the desert. Which brings up an interesting question. Was Jesus, did, he, did Jesus fast in the, you know, in the wilderness because he wanted to or because he had to? Ah, it's a good question. And you, there, there goes your discussion again. So you're able to do that. Or the last thing you could do is compare the passage with texts listed in the margin of the study Bible. For example, here's a good question. If Jesus taught us to pray the opposite in Matthew 6.13, why then does God deliberately lead Jesus into temptation to be tempted by the devil? Now, wait a minute. Jesus says, pray that this never happens to you. Yet, it was deliberately done to Jesus. And you start talking. And, of course, the, the text will support your, the answers. You want to get all your answers from the text. Let's, let's close with this final thought. One of the biggest problems in Bible study is people try to bring in what they've heard elsewhere. You have to learn to listen to the text. Listen for that still, small voice. Get your answers from the text not from anywhere else you've heard anything. You want to get it straight out of the text. Okay? Just like we said before, was the devil insulting Jesus or taunting him? The word is tempt. He's deliberately trying to cause Jesus to fail. He wants to trip him up. He wants to ruin his messianic ministry. He's not insulting him. He's trying to taunt him into making a mistake. You get that from the text. You get that from the text. Well, I hope you've seen what we've tried to present. The idea here is very clear. You, you want to get people into their Bibles connecting with God rather than just with each other. And if they're connecting with God and we have the Spirit of God, there will be a bonding that takes place that will help you to build your church. Let's bow our heads and have a quick word of prayer. Father God, thank you so much that we could get together in this time. I hope that the people will explore the possibilities and, and make Jesus their teacher. And with Jesus as their teacher, get into the Bible, leaning entirely on him through, through prayer and the Holy Spirit to understand the text as Jesus explains it to them. In his wonderful name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. God bless you. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.